You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Ann Packer is the author of the short story collection Mendocino and Other Stories, the novels The Dive from Clausen's Pier and Songs Without Words. Her new collection of stories is Swim Back to Me. Thank you for joining me, Ann. Thanks for having me. And these stories are just wonderful. And I think one of the things that I loved so much about them is to me they seemed kind of dominated in a way almost by a, a form of ghost story and that there are so many people in the stories who aren't actually there. Interesting. Interesting to think about the uh, the structure of a ghost story and how that might turn up in what is essentially realism, mm-hmm. which is what I'm working on. I think I think I can I can imagine what you might mean by ghosts in that characters are either missing or off stage but incredibly present in the minds of the characters so that for example in the opening piece Walk for Mankind, the novella that starts the book off, the young narrator Richard is um, always aware that his mother has um, departed and sort of decamped from the home that they formerly shared with his father. So she's a presence in his life who has a lot to do with what happens in the course of the novella, what the events are, and yet she's hardly ever on stage. And I think that's a really interesting way of working, of characterization in absentia. Right. She does she does uh come up. She's she's um in a few scenes. But as I was working on the piece, I it was really important for me to get him and to get him in his environment with his lonely father and the new family that moves into the neighborhood who really intrigue him and the mother is is gone. One of the things I love about that story is the setting. It's set in 1972. And you just really have a, a way with your language um, and your prose of evoking this feel of summer. And, and uh, there's a really nice feeling of kind of uh, not nostalgia, really, but wistfulness that, that runs through this story. And we realize the character, the narrator, tells us at one point that when he's telling the story, he's 50 years old. And, and I think this is a really nice place. So talk about creating... Um, Palo Alto and Stanford of what? And it's almost 40 years ago. 40 years ago. Wow. That's a long time. Almost 40 years ago. Yeah. It it helped that I was the exact age that Richard, the, the narrator, and Sasha, his new friend, are in 1972 and 1973, 13, 14 years old. That's how old I was then. I remember that time in Stanford and Palo Alto very, very vividly. It was a time of uh, a number of changes in my life. Things were changing in the world as well. The 60s were sort of winding down. I would say they probably ended in 1973 or 4. And the feeling of possibility and even threat for children was, uh, was pretty palpable. Now, uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting was that you chose to tell this story from the perspective uh, of Richard, who's a young man. And I think there's a a theme of, you know, uh, burgeoning sexuality that runs through the piece. And you have a really great vision of that, of that kind of transition 
into that. And I'd like you to talk about how you develop it from the beginning through the end of the story, where at the beginning it's just very um, barely perceptible. At the end it's it's wound into every single thought and everything that's happening. And I think that's what happens in our lives. You do a lovely job of showing how and that happens. Well, thank you. Um, Richard is, as I said, 13 when when, uh, the story opens, and this family, the Horowitz family, moves into his neighborhood, and there's this girl, Sasha, who is um, bewitching and very eccentric and like no one he's ever met before. But at the very beginning, when he first meets her, she's she's someone who is a new kind of friend for him. And he's he's just pre-sexual at that point. And in the course of the novella, she meets an older man, um, a, a guy who is in his 20s and actually is a drug dealer as well as <laughs> someone a little too old for a 14-year-old girl. And she begins to develop a lot faster than Richard. She gets into some things that um, are a little advanced for a girl her age, um, both in terms of experimentation with drugs and also this relationship with this guy. And as Richard watches it develop, he begins to have a different kind of feeling for her. And so in a way, it starts with jealousy. The jealousy, in a sense, gives birth to his um, this new kind of attachment he begins to feel for her. By the end of the novella, it's, it's all he can think about. And, you know, not to give too much away, but by, by the end, it's clear what will and what never will happen between them. One of the things I think that's really wonderful about this story is the way that <clears throat> you use um, uh, revelationist plot. And this is something that, that happens throughout throughout the stories in this book. At one point, we when we first see Sasha in this relationship with this older man, it, we see it from his point of view, and he doesn't quite get it. And as readers, neither do we. But then there was a point in the story when I realized, oh, my God, what this you know, older man is doing is punishable. It, it's, it's predatory. It's yeah. predatory. And, and I think that the way you bring that out in the reader as a reading experience, it's not something that I twig to immediately. And, and I thought it was really uh, a well-wrought piece of, uh, of tension bringing us further into the story. It, it's interesting to think about how you use tension in fiction. Um, I, I, I was asked at a reading last week, you know, how do you, how do you make it tense enough? Especially at the beginning, how do you plant the seeds of expectation? How do you make the reader want to um, read and find out what's going to happen? And for me, it, it's so intuitive. I really don't think about, okay, I need to... You know, I need to ratchet it up a little bit here. I need to get the stakes a little bit higher. It's almost as if I were listening to a track of the novella that is the track about tension. And I'm hearing it, and maybe I'm fiddling with the volume a little so that I'm both listening and adjusting at the same time. It's interesting that you use a kind of a musical metaphor. Music plays a, a, a part in uh, one of the stories, there's a, a, a piece that from that from which the uh, 
uh, collection takes its title, actually, called Molten. And this is another piece of characterization in absentia, and it's a theme you return to a couple times in this collection of stories of the, the problems of a, what happens to um, a mother who loses her child. And, and I think that uh, your discussion, uh, what happens to, to Catherine in this, in Moulton, is the, the way you reveal that character is really wonderful. And there's so much music involved in it. I have to wonder, did you listen to the kind of music that she had to listen to? And did you, like, enjoy it? I mean, this must have actually been a bit of kind of research for you. Well, it's funny. My interest in the music, my listening to the music, actually came before the story. I... I was teaching a writing class at San Francisco State, and um, one of my students started making mixtapes for me. I think it was because he he saw me as you know a late thirties mom who whose entire musical life was you know wound up in Raffi or whatever you know <laughs> songs for children, and so he, he saw he saw a vacuum and he filled it with mixtapes and. It was the right thing at the right time for me. I just started listening to his music and got incredibly hooked. And over the course of, you know, less than a year, certainly, he must have made me 30 or 40 tapes. Some of them were uh, mixtapes. Others, he would record albums of his. And it was, it was one of those aesthetic experiences that just reaches in and grabs you and changes you. And it was under the, um, under the influence of that experience that I began to think about this woman, Catherine, whose teenage son is gone. He's been killed in an accident. And the story and the selection of songs came together pretty intuitively but I had I had the sort of pool of music to draw from and that was where I had started well one of the things I I like about the way the story unfolds is that she has a kind of Catherine has a a secret life and that secret life is is the music and and that's and and there's almost I think uh the way you describe her reaction to the music is uh it's numinous Uh, she it's this feeling that uh, she reaches out beyond herself. She she can she, through the music she connects to all these other peoples. It's it again. It reminded me a little bit of you know reaching out to to dead souls. It's very much a, a kind of a ghostly feeling. Right. Um, I'm I'm thinking about think the passage that you're talking about where she's she's recognizing the reason she's listening to the music and maybe we should make this explicit is that her son is gone and it's how she's connecting with him. She. When her husband leaves for work in the morning, her daughter leaves for school, she goes up to the bedroom that was her son's and sits for hours and just listens to his music. And she has a, an idea early in the story that all the people who ever listen to a particular song are connected in some other dimension, essentially, and that she and Ben, her son, are together in this other dimension appreciating this music and yet there are hundreds of people between them you know one of the things i think that uh is interesting in in that story too is the way she thinks at one point and not really realizing what she says is that the song was all about her and and (laughs) that you know she's not really conscious of how much of her life is really all about her 
I think she she thinks at one point that the that the music turns her into an instrument that she becomes the thing the song is played on. Well, that's an interesting perception. Now, when you this is uh, one of uh, several explorations of, of you know grief in this book. As a as a writer, how did you research grief, or, or how how did you approach this? Because this is a a, a pretty difficult topic uh, for any woman. I, I believe you have children, right? I do have children, and in fact, two of the uh, two of the six pieces involve mm-hmm. a son who has who has died. There's you know Ben, the teenager in in the story Molten, and then there's a baby in a story called Her Firstborn that has died before the story started again. And so as you, as you were saying earlier, I suppose has kind of the role of a ghost. In terms of my character's emotional lives, it's, a, it's about feeling my way, imagining my way into what mm-hmm. their experience might be. And I guess I would say that my research is being alive and <laughs> <laughs> going through things, watching other people go through things, imagining the worst thing I can imagine and playing that out. So I think my job as a fiction writer is is to go where I don't necessarily have experience and make it up. That's really interesting. Now, uh, when you start a story like this, do you know where? How much do you know, and how much do you make up? I mean, how, because also the the plot of this story is very very nice because we have two kind of. Uh, parallel uh, things happening. There's, again, this revelatory uh, part of the plot where we're just trying to figure out what happened to her, how, what happened to the, to the family, and get all those details straight, and those are revealed to us. And then there are the events that are transpiring in her day-to-day life, which culminate in this ending where we, when we finally understand everything that happened, we see her take action based on that. And that kind of, as a reader, that's a nice, satisfying little uh, frisson to, to experience when we get that kind of everything. We roll up our own understanding while she plays out her own emotional anguish. And I think that's a very nicely done. But is, is, again, I, I'm guessing that you're, you seem to be um, an, uh, a jazz writer. <laughs> <laughs> Improvising as I go. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Some... some some pieces of fiction, I, I really do have a sense of where it's going to end. I have a, a shape in mind, so I know sort of where the characters are starting emotionally and interpersonally, and then I have a sense, as I said, of where they're going to end up, and, you know, the fun for me is, is getting them there. Other times, I really don't know, and I'm just kind of um, in the forest, in the dark, trying to find my way. And honestly, with Molten, I don't remember what I knew about the ending when I first started writing it. With my novels, I really did know the endings, the the general feel of the endings before I got going. Now, one of the things all the stories in this book share is a really clear-headed and um, deep understanding of life in suburban America, in, in ex-urban America, you know, the edges of the of the sprawl of the big cities. And <clears throat> as, a, as a writer, I'm just wondering, you know, that's a, a choice you make, and you, you do a really nice job. And it's not always a pretty picture, but it's a, it's a powerful picture. And, you know, your, your work all has a, a certain tenor 
to it. And I just am curious, as a, as a writer, do you, um, is this something, again, is this some, the way, this is the key you play in, I guess. Is <laughs> Going back to music, I guess it really is. The settings for the stories in the novella in this book are almost all in California, almost all here in the Bay Area. One story takes place in Eugene, Oregon, and mm. another takes place up in Auburn in the Sierra Foothills. I didn't I didn't so much want to make it a a book about where I live now as the stories I was writing were about people who live where I live now. Mm. Um, the what always comes first and leads is a sense of character, place, situation, voice, problem that that kind of are all folded in together into something that I may have some articulated ideas about when I start and I and I may really just have kind of a, a feeling and I go from from there into into the full invention of the piece. What when you write these pieces, something like Molten, does it come out perfect the first time? No. <laughs> well I I don't know I don't know how we talk, um, how we define perfect or, or what perfect might be, but I do tons of drafts. Every every story in this book went through, you know, I would say probably at a minimum five, six drafts. And in some of them, there were very, they were very different when I wrote the first draft or two than they are in the final book. When, you know, you're talking about the narrator of Walk for Mankind, Richard, the the 13-year-old boy. I didn't have him as the narrator when I first started writing the book. I actually thought that this new family, the Horowitz family, was happening to an unhappy 13-year-old girl. And I wrote it that way. I tried to write it that way, I should say, for a few years, but I didn't get anywhere. And it was just one of those moments I know exactly where I was on the freeway when I had the idea wait a minute maybe this is all happening to a boy so I started over now you're working then I guess on multiple stories at at the same time then you don't just start one and finish one have lots of threads going the 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 stories tend to be one at a time in breaks from the novels Mm -hmm. at least that's how the uh probably the first few of the stories in this book began. Um, I would, I, I spent a long time writing both my novels, and I sought out feedback from my writer's group at various junctures when I felt that I had a finished draft. And I would work on the stories, start a story, work on a story while I was waiting for people to, to read and, and tell me, you know, what they saw. When I would get the, the draft of the novel back, I would set the story aside. And that went on for, I don't know, probably five or six years until the second novel was published. And then I began to devote myself exclusively to this book. And it, it was the same kind of thing in that I would, I would be most focused on one story, but I would sort of send it out for review and begin another one, and then set the new one aside when, when the sort of main one came back. When, when you uh, finish like a draft of a story, and you have something that feels finished to you, and you send it out, how long, is there a gap that you have to have before you can like look at it again and not 
and, and like be far enough back to, to judge what the comments are? And, and, and tell us a little bit, too, about your writing group. I, um, I have never gotten feedback that felt premature. I, I've mm-hmm. never had an experience where I've um, asked someone to read for me and gotten their thoughts before I was ready to use them. Mm. It, it may be possible that I could feel that way. I can't quite imagine it. Usually by the time I ask for readers, I have gotten so far along with a particular draft that I'm really, you know, if they're ready tomorrow, I'm ready tomorrow. But usually it's a few weeks. Um, my writer's group is, uh, I'm actually on my second writer's group. I had I had a writer's group in the late 90s who helped me tremendously with the dive from Clausen's Pier. And the group I'm in now formed in around 2004, 2005. Actually, they they were a group, and then I joined them. And they're just, it's a, it's a fantastic thing to have these extremely intelligent and trusted readers who will take the time to, to really focus on what each other has written and it's not, it's not about having someone tell you what to do. It's about having someone tell you, in a sense, what you've done. Having someone read, interpret, say, this is what's really interesting here, are the hot spots in the book. This is where my attention lagged. And then you sort of take that in and go back and kind of begin again. Do you rewrite from the beginning or do you go in and just tweeze the same lump again and again. <laughs> I, I tweeze that lump a lot. I do both. Every day I, I go back and rewrite what I did the day before. Every hour I go back and rewrite what I did the hour before. Mm. Uh, in something as large and lumpish as a novel, you know, I will, I will probably, when I first start revising, spend a lot of time at the beginning and, and move very methodically forward. But at some point I'm going to I'm going to be, be out there in the middle of the desert with my tweezers <laughs> working away. <laughs> uh, you know, there's uh, one of the things that makes your stories uh, so, so enjoyable is you have a kind of a nice understated sense of humor. And, and it's really, it makes them, they're, they're fun. And, and I'm thinking about Jump with Alejandro. And, and that's kind of, what's interesting to me about that story is it's, um, you really turn all our exp- as our characters, your characters' expectations are turned upside down. So are the readers, and it's almost like a a journey to the other world. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. The main character is a a thirtyish woman named Carolee who's kind of in a a dead end. I won't just say job. Her her life isn't really moving in a satisfying direction for her. She works at a copy shop, and one of the co-workers is a young guy named Alejandro and he volunteers to help her when her car won't start and suffice it to say he's not who he appears to be and the deception that he visits upon her in order to satisfy his own needs leads them both to some surprising places. You know this is a kind of a a piece of a genre that I a certain kind of story form I really really like which is this kind of um, journey into, you know, uh, a strangeness or journey into another where, where you just like bore out of your, where you're forced by some kind of circumstance, a character is forced out of their lives and they have to go 
somewhere else with somebody else and they don't know where they're going and they're kind of like completely dodgy on new ground. And this is a, I mean, I think this is a kind of a respected, almost American short story form. And you see it a lot in the movies, but I think in short stories it works really well because there's this kind of, um, you get a great uh, combination of unease and comedy at the same time. <laughs> That's a great thought. Yeah, he, she ends up in a mansion <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> belong, belonging to some extremely wealthy people, and she doesn't know how to behave. And it, and it might as well be another country. It's so weird for her. Hmm. There's a story in here called Dwell Time, and this is another... Uh, one of your uh, characterizations in absentia, the main character is gone from the from the get-go, or one of the main characters is gone from the get-go. And you do, one of the things this story is, is very, very tense. And, and, and you just nicely ratchet the tension up. So I'm wondering, did you conceive of this story in that kind of like a, from the very, very, I mean, almost, from, I think from the very first sentence, we're worried. Right. It's It's a story about a woman whose husband is, late. <laughs> That's where it starts. And as he gets later and later, his absence becomes more and more mysterious and worrying. And I did. I, I, I started with the idea of a woman waiting in a house and waiting with children who are not hers for their father. That ends up being a scene that's a little further into the story, but that was sort of the germ for me, is I just imagined this very tense situation where they aren't actually a real, tightly knit, comfortable, interdependent family yet. It's this woman and these kids, and what links them is the person who's not there. And one of the things I think you do really well in this story and all the stories is this story, I mean, it's not very long, it has a huge cast of characters. And this is something that can become unwieldy, but you do a great job for the reader of laying everything out in a manner so that we can put it all together. And and put these stories allow us, I think, each of these stories, I didn't really realize this till this moment, is that these stories allow us to put together the complicated, uh, gnarly little relationships that have, exist in every home, in every suburb, between any person you see on the street and a bunch of other people you're not seeing. You put these relationships together and kind of tweak them and twist them and torment them just a little bit. And, and I think that you do a really good job of creating, you know, the complexity in a, in a compact space. That's one of the really fun things about the short story is that... Um a little can and really has to stand for a lot. So in the case of dwell time, the narrator, or rather the the main character, a woman named Laura, has these moments with her husband's children that have to represent her history with them. And I really, I really enjoyed that, that part of, of writing this story is thinking, you know, what, what am I not saying? What happened before you know, seven o'clock rolled around on this particular evening. And I don't, I don't make a lot of decisions in my own mind. I don't answer that question, what happened, but I kind of, and not to sound too, you know, mysterious or whatever, but I kind of feel it around the edges of what I write. Well, one of the things too, I like about uh, this story, both Laura and the, and from the 
previous story we were talking about, Carol Lee. I mean, when these women find out things that surprise them, their reaction isn't, oh, I'll forgive you. They're pissed off. <laughs> they're, they're not going to put up with it. And I really like that about them. Well, it's a lot of fun for me, I think, to um, push my characters to places that I find uncomfortable, that um, most people find uncomfortable. And, you know, in a sense, it's, it's a, little bit of, a little bit of torture by the author of the characters to see what happens when they're put under a lot of pressure. The way we get to know these characters, too, is a, it's a very complicated uh, piece of writing with the, uh, and you do this a lot, I think all your stories are, are, they read very simply, we just experience them a, a nice throughput all the way through, and, and it's nice how, you, how well, successfully you mask your own skill at like layering, that there's a flashback here or a memory there, and that you use this, you use the kind of uh, varying, uh, your little uh, prose time machine, as it were, to <laughs> to take us to to create tension and keep the reader reading. Yeah, in in dwell time, one of the early drafts, I guess probably the first draft I showed my writers group, didn't have the movements into the past, the memories, flashbacks, whatever uh, that the final version has, and that was one of the pieces of feedback I got. Is you know, there's you know. What else? You know, what's what's behind this? What's underneath it? Uh, what came first? And I, I, in a sense, took the questions very literally and ended up constructing a sort of double flashback, a flashback that takes place um, in, in two separate parts in the story around her first meeting, this, this man, Matt, her husband, who uh, has not come home. Now, um, speaking of uncomfortable situations, her firstborn is is certainly that. Um, and, and again, this is a, a story where the 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 couple has lost their child. A, a, a baby has died, and I think we can say that without spoiling too much of the story. Oh, sure, yeah. And um, what again? You have a really nice way, though, of laying this out. And for a story with such a, a, a potentially really um, sad and, and, you know, gut-wrenching subject, this story is kind of genial and and sweet. And and I love the character of Dean. I think you did a great job with Dean. Well, thank you. Dean is a not not in the uh, first blush of youth man who's (laughs) facing fatherhood for the first time at, I can't remember what I made him, 40 or something like that. Uh, His wife was married previously and her child from that first marriage, in that first marriage, died at the age of five months old. And the story isn't about her grief. It's not, she's metabolized it. This is all eight years before the action of the story. It's about Dean circling around the question of how she can bear what she went through and what's going to happen to them. They are facing the creation of a family that creates also the possibility of its own undoing and are they gonna are they gonna get through and he's a kind of ironic self-deprecating vaguely pessimistic guy who comes to a recognition about Lisa his wife's 
earlier loss only when he actually has his baby in his arms, essentially, and begins to get what it really means to both be a parent and have a child. Uh, I think it's so... Uh, the, the, the story is, 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 has the both minds the power of some of the tragedy, but it, it does a great job of kind of um, being gentle with the reader about it. And, and I think that's a, a very delicate touch that you bring to it. I'm wondering, did you have, um, as you created the story, did it, it seems like a story that could be just from the first blush of the story, you might think this is gonna be really uh, a dire. There was, did it, was there a dire version of this? No, there never was because of who Dean is. Mm. Dean is, um, the story opens with Dean and Lisa um, having their first childbirth class, and he's actually at work when she comes to pick him up to for the two of them to go to this childbirth class. And he's recalling as he looks out the window and sees her pulling up in the car that they were told on the flyer for the class to bring pillows. He thinks in that, I think this is in the first paragraph, he thinks, you know, it seems like a broken rule of nature, no personal bedding outside the home, please. So that just sort of sets up his sardonic, awkward self. And for me, and I think this probably is what the reader, most readers would feel, it can't be all that dire given his voice, his point of view. Mm -hmm. And, and the the collection closes with a, a story that kind of bookends around the first one. We the first one we we meet uh, Richard at fifty, and and in the final story, we meet another character at fifty. And and I think that what's what I I liked about <laughs> this is another story that was kind of sweet and and funny at the same time. <laughs> and with a with a so talk about uh, creating things said or done. Things Said or Done picks up with the Horowitz family from Walk for Mankind 35 years later. And Sasha is now a middle-aged woman. And the, the parents who so enraptured young Richard in Walk for Mankind are now her aging and, in the case of her father, extremely difficult burdens, in a sense. Her father in Walk for Mankind is a kind of charming, uh, magnetic type who creates a lot of fun for the kids who are in his house, but who has a, a vein of uh, vanity. Mm. And in Things Said or Done, that vein is whatever veins do. It's, it's, it's throbbing. You have a <laughs> it's, it's, it's really, it's varicose. Um, <laughs> and, and it's Sasha's job to take care of him. She's made it her job. And the setting of the story is her younger brother's wedding, and she and her father have traveled from the East Coast to Berkeley, where the wedding is taking place. Her mother, who had divorced her father, uh, comes out separately. And the story is about her navigation of this sort of unintentional reunion of, of her nuclear family under what should be this, you know, glorious event of of her brother's wedding but because of her parents because of who they are because of who she is well let's say there's tension <laughs> the, the horror wits horror and the curse <laughs> as they say there's a 
there's some great language in there where at one point uh, she describes, says that uh, other people, uh, she's talking about her father, she, and she thinks other people throw parties. My father throws emergencies. And I thought that was a, I'm just hoping that that, it, that, that description is not aimed at me someday. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, one does not want to be viewed by their children as Sasha views Dan. He's a handful. The, the idea of the parent becoming the child is, is definitely played out in this story. And, and two, there's a couple stories in this book where uh, women find themselves shying away from the roles of being men's caretakers. There's, there's a scene where uh, a woman's divorce group is, is meeting, and, and would you want to be with someone with diabetes? No, no, no. I don't want, no more caretaking. Right, I'm done taking care of people. <laughs> yeah. You know, that that's... That's, in a sense, the, the lament of, I won't say the modern woman, that's a little sweeping, but it's certainly the lament of a lot of women I know. Um, not so much I'm done taking care of people as I'm constantly taking care of people. <laughs> and the women in the divorce group you're referring to, who are, you know, essentially non-characters in the story, it's, it's, a, it's just a reference in a paragraph, but uh, they're, they're at that point where if the marriage is over, then surely the caretaking <laughs> is over. And they want the next guy to, you know, not be diabetic. You know, I, I think one of the things I, reading the story, I think we get a great picture of modern America, which may, I'm not necessarily, not that you're trying any to be, have any grandiose ambitions with the work, but I think it, that's one of the, I think the, the wonderful uh, parts of reading the stories is really feels genuine and um, uh, low-key, unpretentious, and you let us into the lives of people we don't get to usually see in fiction, and that's one thing I truly love about your work. Well, thank you. Um, I suppose they're the lives that that I see around me, or they're they're inspired by by the lives I see lived around me. And, and th- that's why I'm drawn to these particular characters and stories. Now, are you working on another novel? I am. I've started another novel. Oh, um, good. It'll be, it'll be a long, long time before it sees the light of day. I'm just getting going. It's, I've never known less about what I was doing than I do right now about what I'm writing right now. And I've got over 100 pages, and I honestly, I just some days I go in and I think, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And other days I'm baffled. But uh, that's part of the fun in a way is, you know, surviving, surviving the baffling days and, and going back and, and finding a way forward. I've been speaking with Ann Packer. Her new collection is Swim Back to Me. Thank you for joining me, Ann. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.